Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 85, and we're going to talk about high top versus low top and my actual recent experience with both. We'll also talk about modifying existing rigs, how it's harder and easier, but mostly harder, a tale from the road involving which side of the street to walk on, and a product review of a very small and very sharp object. Hi folks, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me once again. I've got a couple of things to talk about here. First is that my NV200, my van, my Pagurus is for sale. Yes, sad but true. I can't have two vans. I just bought an ambulance, so I am selling my NV200. I'm asking $15,000 for it. I have the listing in the show notes, and you can take a look if you're interested. There has been a good amount of interest. This market is hot right now, so if you're looking to sell a van, this is a really good time. I also want to talk about something I saw on Facebook. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Kelly coined a term that I think everyone should know, and it's called van standing. That's van standing. One word, van standing. And it is a verb, and it means the act of standing in your van for hours, considering the end result and the process to get you there. I am a fan of van standing. I think it's something everybody should do. I have been doing this a lot, obviously, because I have this ambulance I'm working on. I've just been sitting back there and looking and imagining and moving things around with my brain and saying, what if the sink's over here? And then would I trip on that? And that kind of a thing. I did this a lot with the NV200 too. And I am in favor of it. I think everybody should do it. <laughs> on Facebook, there were some comments that, you know, like, I didn't waste any time. I just got right into my build and started building. And like, okay, great. Good for you. But I think there's a lot of value in visualizing possibilities. And that's the kind of builder I am. I know that other people like to follow recipes and well, that is not my thing. Anyway, good term to know, van standing. All right, let's talk about high top versus low top. I've obviously talked about this a lot and it comes up a lot. It's something people who are looking to buy a van are curious about. It's common to think that, oh, if I can't stand up, what's the point? And I get that. I mean, in almost all commercial RVs, you can stand up. It's just a given. But vans, well, you know, you can go both ways. So I currently have two vehicles, one that I can stand up in and one that I can't. And I've been driving them around both equally. And I think I have something to say on this topic that I didn't before. And I'm going to say it. That's how this works. So what are the pros and cons of a low roof? You're going to be surprised to hear me have a whole lot of pros for a low roof. Actually, you might not if you've been listening to the podcast for a while. If you have a low roof van, and that low roof varies a lot, but I'm going to use my NV200 as an example. If you have a low roof sprinter, you're actually taller than an NV200. But if you have a low roof van, you can park in parking garages, go to drive throughs not worry about mechanics being able to fit your van in their lot, get better gas mileage, and have more stealth. And that's just for starters. That's a lot of pros. Now, what cons are there for a low roof? Well, you can't stand up. And honestly, and I mean this, the only time I have ever regretted not being able to stand up in my van was when I was trying to put on my pants. 
That was the most difficult thing. If I needed to stand up for something, I could just step outside to do that. Although that's a little awkward in the case of pants. So, low roofs are great. They're absolutely an option. And I would argue that if you are going to do weekend type of stuff, or, you know, maybe you're just going to go out for a couple weeks a year or whatever, if you're going to be very mobile, if mobility is your thing rather than parking in one place for a long time, I would strongly consider low roofs. And I left out perhaps the most important thing about low roof vans. They're significantly cheaper because people don't think of them. So don't dismiss them right away. And another thing, see, there's so many pros I keep forgetting. When you're in a low-roof van, it is much easier to heat and cool that space because it's lower, especially for heat. Heat rises. Ooh, shocking. And if you're closer to the ceiling, you're closer to the heat. So for winter configurations, a low-roof van actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, now, <laughs> I'm clearly excited about low-roof vans. Now, onto the high-top vans. Okay, so... Of course you can stand up in a high-top van. That is great. And in times, if you're going to do any kind of entertaining or if you're going to use your van kind of as a base camp for days at a time, that can be huge. Also, and it's kind of not all that obvious, you get a lot more storage with a high-roof fan. You can put upper cabinets. You can put taller cabinets. If you have a high-roof fan you can stand in, you are increasing the cubic feet of living space by probably 40%. It's a huge, huge increase. And your van will also have a higher resale value. Older, high-top vans will maintain a higher kind of a basic price that they're worth much better than a low-roof van. People are willing to buy an older high-top van more than they are willing to buy an older low-roof van. So that's a huge benefit there. Also, you have the chance to put in windows that give you privacy. If you have a high-top van, you can put in what are sometimes called alpine windows or eyebrow windows or whatever. These little windows that go across the roof at the top, they're great for ventilation if they open and have screens. And they're so high that nobody can see in them. That's an option you don't have in the low-roof fans. As for cons, well, you have everything that I listed on the pro side of the low-roof fans, of course, but there are some others that aren't so obvious. In many high-roof fans, the roof is actually made of fiberglass. It depends on the van. My Sprinter high-top is metal. I believe the Promasters are also metal. The Transits, I'm not entirely sure of. But any of the Econo lines or Chevy Express vans like that, those are almost all fiberglass because they, are not, they don't actually come from the manufacturer. There is no high-top Econo line you can buy from Ford. Well, in fact, you can't buy an Econo line from Ford, but you get what I'm saying. Fiberglass roofs are fine, but they do present some problems because they're not structural. There are no ribs. You can't hang things from a fiberglass roof. If you think about it, it's just a thin layer of fiberglass. What are you going to screw into to hold things up? You'd have to send a bolt outside the van, and uh-oh, then you've got a hole in your roof, and then you have a chance for leaks, and nobody wants that. Another con for high-roof fans is that the roof is high. <laughs> and by that I mean if you have solar panels up there, you have to climb up a ladder to go clean your solar panels. I can actually clean my solar panels on my NV200 just by standing on the sill of the open door. Couldn't do that in my Sprinter. In fact, I've got to figure out a way to get a ladder. I, I don't have solar panels now, but when I put them in, I'm going to have to have some kind of a ladder. I'll probably use a telescoping ladder. You also get more wind sway with the tall roof, which isn't that 
surprising. But if you're going down the highway and a big side wind comes, yeah, it's going to push you over more than a low roof would. And because it's a high roof, your doors are much bigger and much heavier. This is only a problem if there's a problem with your doors. But if there is, well, like the sliding door on my Sprinter is probably too heavy for me to lift. If I had to take it off, that would be a big problem. The sliding doors on my NV200, I absolutely could lift with no problem. And the back doors of my Sprinter go all the way from the bottom to the top, and they're big, huge pieces of metal. There's more chance for them to bend. There's more chances for the seals to be loose because, after all, those rear door seals on all vans are kind of wimpy to begin with. If your doors are bigger, you have more seal. There's more waste for stuff to get in. Now, having said all this, you might think, well, you clearly prefer the low roofs. Why did you bother getting a high roof? Well, it's because I want to do the stuff that a high roof lets me do. I actually want the more space. My particular need is that I have a length restriction. I cannot have a van longer than a certain amount. And if I want more space, it only makes sense for me to go up. And that's what I've done. And that's why your personal needs, wants, and opportunities dictate this more than anything else. My only argument with all of these pros and cons, high top versus low top, is to ask you to consider a low top. See if it would work for you it may end up being the better solution. And of course, there's the option I haven't even talked about, which is pop tops, which is a whole other world. But I will throw this in there. Adding a pop top to a van will cost you probably $10,000. So don't buy a low roof van thinking you'll just throw a pop top on it. It's not that simple. And there's a lot that can go wrong with it. So there's some thoughts, high tops versus low tops. I think people just have an emotional reaction to low tops, and I, I kind of feel like they should take a step back. But if you live somewhere where you can have a high top and you're willing to put up with the lower gas mileage and not being able to go through drive throughs they're great! Tech Talk. All right, hey, I bought an ambulance. I know, how many times am I going to say that? Probably like seven times an episode for the next while because that's what I'm working on. Sorry, but that's how it is. Ambulances are pre-built rigs, and I am learning, and it's not a big surprise to me, but it's definitely clear to me now that when you're working on a pre-built rig, you face challenges that you might not, in fact, that I know that you don't when you're building out a blank rig. <laughs> this applies to anybody who's buying a rig that either somebody else built out or was a former RV or is an ambulance or was some other vehicle that you're trying to repurpose. The problem you can run into is that you get stuck in these monkey puzzle situations. Now, the, the classic monkey puzzle in history is you put a fruit in a bowl, and the monkey sticks his hand in the bowl and grabs the fruit, but by grabbing the fruit makes his fist too large for it to be able to be removed from the bowl, and the monkey is too greedy to let go of the fruit, thus the monkey is trapped. And I'm finding that to be the case in this ambulance for sure. There are parts that are attached in such a way that they block the disattachment of other parts. And if you don't know what that pattern is, you get stuck. Right now, there's a wooden panel on the roof of my ambulance that's bolted into something. 
but the bolt does not have a place to put a screwdriver or a wrench on it. It is just a smooth, flat bolt. I have no way to detach it from the bottom, and I have no idea what it goes to in the top. And there's nothing around it that gives me any information. And this is because the, the ambulance was built according to a plan. They did step A, step B, step C, and I'm coming in at step G and trying to wedge in a step G.7 to do whatever I want. And yeah, that happens. And so while it might immediately seem that it would be easier to just modify somebody's existing rig, and it, it could be depending on what you're doing, you are going to run into little frustrating things like this, and you just have to be aware of that and then be prepared to deal with it. In my case, with this weird ceiling thing, it happens to be right over where my cooktop is going to be. So I'm going to cover it with some sort of a heat-resistant metal plate or something. I haven't figured it out yet. And I might put a light on there. I'm going to repurpose this thing so that it does what I want it to do. Ooh, I could do a pot rack. Hmm, that might be noisy. Anyway, there are things you can do, but you are going to have to do these things. You will find that you can't remove... A classic example in RVs is... I can think of two classic examples of this in RVs. Carpets and couches. Carpets are often put in in RVs before the furniture. So it will be underneath the furniture that is bolted to the floor. So if you wanted to replace the carpet the same way it was put in, you'd have to remove all the furniture in the RV. Of course, what people do is they just cut around, and that's how they deal with it. A more difficult problem is couches. For a while, and this may still be the case, they would install the couches into the RV before they put the walls up. And then the door that came with the RV is too small for the couch to get out. So if you wanted to replace your couch, you had to take it apart, take it out the door, and then either find a couch you could assemble inside the RV or get a little itty-bitty couch. These are the kind of things. So just be aware, if you're looking at a rig that's already built out, either consider making as few changes as possible or ripping it all out. Those are going to be the least frustrating things. If you're in that situation where you want to do some pretty serious modifications, you are going to run into these problems. But you can always, always just rip everything out and put it back. It's aggravating. It's something that feels bad. Two weeks ago, I had a perfectly functioning ambulance. Right now, I have a van with a bunch of stuff ripped out of it and stuff everywhere. It's an uncomfortable place to be. But in the end... As long as you are dedicated and persevere, you will get the van you want. Tales from the Road. This is something I haven't figured out the solution for yet. So I have been to Sydney, Australia twice. And Sydney is a big, lovely, modern city. Nice parks. There's cockatoos flying around in the trees. I, I really like Sydney. And I wish that I had time to go to uh, more wild parts of Australia. I've really only seen Sydney in Australia. But I encountered this phenomenon. It's actually a dual phenomenon that I find a bit odd. Now, as you know, in Australia, they drive on the quote-unquote wrong side of the road. If you look up the history of this, it all goes back to Napoleon. Napoleon dictated that you should ride your carriage on the right side of the road, while the English were like, no, no, the carriage should be on the left side of the road. 
And thus there was this huge dichotomy and English-influenced places tended to stick to being on the left side of the road and French-influenced places tended to stick to being on the right. And then with the U.S. actually being on the Napoleonic side of things due to the revolution and the U.S. influencing the rest of the world, driving on the right has become more or less the worldwide default, except in places with close ties to Britain, and Australia is one of those. Okay, easy enough to understand. But what's weird to me is that all my memories of Australia, where we were riding around in taxis and tour buses and such, the taxis and tour buses were on the right side of the road, and the driver was on the left side of the vehicle, just as though we were in the U.S. Now, I know this isn't true, but that's what I remember. It's a very strange thing, and it just goes to show that memory is not like a VCR tape. It is a thing that is constructed. But the more interesting phenomenon is that when you are walking down the street in Sydney, which side of the street should you be on? No, I mean when you're walking down the sidewalk and someone's coming towards you, do you go to the right or the left? And it's a very complicated problem for a few reasons. First off, it's Sydney. This is an international city. There are people from all over the world there, all with different customs. So some, like me, are going to have the tendency to just automatically go to the right. But if the sidewalks are supposed to follow the street convention, you should go to the left. It is a bit confusing. And what I found was that it's a negotiation. Every time you meet somebody, you kind of look at them and see which direction they're going to go. And I noticed this, too, on cruise ships. The two times I've been to Australia has been on cruise ships, and the passengers were 40, 50, 60% Australian. And the same thing happened in the hallways. You would meet somebody, and you'd have to negotiate, go left or go right. Now, from what I understand, the typical convention in Australia is to match the way you walk on the sidewalk to the way you drive in the street. But in the larger international cities, it just doesn't work, and it ends up being chaos. Very strange little thing, and I don't know how it could be fixed other than them putting signs in the sidewalk that says, keep right, keep left, I don't know. But just a funny little thing about international travel and human nature, and um, I kind of find it a little bit delightful, to be honest. Product review. I, ugh, I try. I'm trying. I'm trying to do this ambulance build without buying any new tools. But I'm in a tough situation because I'm building this out in parking lots. Basically, I don't have a garage or a workshop or anything like that. When I built out the NV200, I had a garage, so I had access to power. I had access to cover and things like that. I have none of that now, and that means some of my tools I can't use. So even though I have a 1,000 watt inverter in the ambulance that came with it, my chop saw, well, it draws 15 amps, as does my skill saw, so I can't use them. But I definitely need to cut things, and I need to cut long things, so I can't just use a handsaw. It would just never be straight enough. So what I found was this thing called a Works W-O-R-X, Nitro 20-volt power share work saw, 4.5-inch cordless compact circular saw with brushless motor. It's, it's like a little skill saw that you hold in the palm of your hand. And it's pretty darn cool. Now, this thing wasn't cheap. It was over 150 bucks. 
comes with a battery and charger, which is important. If you go out and buy one of these things, they don't all come with a battery and charger because they're meant to be part of a system. I, well, I could talk about those systems later, but there's a problem with those systems, and that is they stop making stuff for them. But anyway, this thing has been super, super handy for cutting these panels I have. I bought a bunch of panels at Ikea that I've been cutting and using for things, and these make a nice straight cut so long as I do a trick. And the trick is that I take a big yardstick and I clamp it down as kind of a guide and then I run the saw along that. I'll actually have a video on YouTube coming up showing that technique. It's not super fancy, but it works. And I've been able to get the straightest cuts ever with this thing inside my van. It turns the back of the van into a workshop. Now the saw is very lightweight. You can make many, many cuts on a single charge. I would say, oh, I don't know, you could probably do 10 cuts on a single charge without too much trouble. And it charges pretty quick. Honestly, I have nothing bad to say about this saw at this point, with, with one exception. Blade guide does tend to get bound up sometimes. So if you have that problem, you can just flip the blade guide up. Um, if you've ever used a circular saw or a skill saw, as they're called, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It does come with its own fence, and you can do diagonal cuts with it, too. So if you want to do some 90-degree stuff, it can do that. And it does have the ability to do plunge cuts. These are cuts where you actually start cutting in the middle of a piece of wood. And the way you do that is you put the very front lip of the saw on the surface without the saw touching the surface, and then when the blade comes to full speed, you slowly lower it into the material, and then you can actually cut out a square hole out of a piece of material with one of these, rather than using a jigsaw. Now, I like jigsaws. Jigsaws are great. They suck at making straight lines. <laughs> That's the problem. So I recommend this thing. I'll have a link in the show notes, and I imagine all other brands of these things are similar, but the one I got happened to be this one. So it is the Works 20-volt PowerShare Worksaw Nitro. I don't know what the nitro part is and uh i like it it's gonna make my life a lot easier inside the van a place to visit this is actually going to be a place not to visit it's going to be a little bit of an essay on visiting places there is a place i know of in vermont and it is called honey hollow i don't know that it's on any maps i kind of hope it isn't honey hollow is this absolutely perfect spot. You drive up a dirt road, you end up on top of a hill, and the way the trees are, and the distant hills are, and the little farmhouse and everything that's there creates a perfect painting of whatever you imagine the most beautiful scene in Vermont to be. It is breathtakingly beautiful, this one little spot. Now, it's not majestic like the Rockies, and it's not dramatic like the crashing surf of Maine. It's just perfectly framed and green and peaceful, and it's a place you want to be. And I'm not going to tell you where it is, because if I do and word gets out, it will disappear. See how this works. This is a small place. It's on a private road. There is public access, but it is not an established place. It is not a place where you would pay admission. There's no parking lot. If this place became popular, it would be shut down and it would cease to exist except for the landowners who currently are very kind and generous in letting people come up there. 
They know what an amazing property they have. In fact, it's been in their family for generations. And they have a little monument to that fact with a sculpture of kids on an old-fashioned sled bombing down the hill that just kind of adds a bit of perfection to the spot. But I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm not going to give you any hints on how to find it, because to do so would ruin it. Yes, I feel like I'm privileged that I've been to this place, and I know where it is, and I can go anytime I want. But you see the conundrum here. This is a conundrum that we all face in all of van life. Here's a concrete example of that. I found a great place to stay overnight in South Dakota. It was just a rest area. There weren't any signs prohibiting parking. It was a, far enough away from the highway that it was quiet, and it had some pretty dramatic sunsets. So, being a good vanizen, vaniz, vitis, net, van citizen, I don't know how that works, I put it in iOverlander and thought, hey, other people can take advantage of this. Well, two years later, the site has been shut down. There's all kinds of no parking signs all over it because a lot of people used iOverlander to find it, stayed there, and trashed the place. And such is life. I mean, this is how it is. If you find a secret garden and tell someone about it, you risk destroying the secret garden. I don't have any solutions for you. I'm just pointing out that this is a phenomenon that exists, and I'm not willing to let it happen to Honey Hollow on my watch. I am sure glad I found the place. I'm very happy for the time I spent there, and I want that experience for you too. But giving it to you potentially means destroying it, and I can't let that happen. Resource recommendation. <laughs> this is going to seem like the silliest thing in the world, but it's actually useful. It's a list of vans, all right? But it's a list of all vans. It's Wikipedia, but Wikipedia has these, these lists that often go over. Look, you know, if you think about it, you go to Wikipedia and you type in, like, George Washington or whatever, and it brings up George Washington. But you may not see that there's a list of presidents or a list of people who had false teeth or a list of people with famous myths told about them. Those things kind of exist. And there is a list of vans that is pretty useful. It's also fairly amazing. There are hundreds and hundreds of vans here, many you have probably never heard of. Have you ever heard of the Saturn Relay? Did you know that Saturn made vans? I didn't. It turns out it's just a copy of an Uplander type of van from GM, the kind that Foresty Forest used to have. But there was one made by Saturn, supposedly. Or how about the Voxel Rascal? That was a mid-engine van that looks kind of cool that we never got in the U.S., of course. Or the Nissan Interstar. That's a much bigger van that is more of a Euro van than the Nissan vans we could until this year get in the U.S., it's kind of fun looking at all these things. And some of them have cool names, like the Bedford Beagle. And I know Bedford's out of business. Mitsubishi Expo. I had a Mitsubishi Expo. I never really thought of it as a van because it had doors that opened like a car. But I guess it was. Mercury Villager, another van that I've owned. How about a Mercedes-Benz Vito? You know what that is? That's just what they call mattresses overseas. Anyway, this this just one website, which is wikipedia.org slash wiki slash list underscore of underscore vans, 
is actually very educational. If you want to learn more about vans and their heritage and what your van might be called in other countries, this is a really good resource for that. And it will also give you a very quick guide to finding your van and all of its different things. I've talked about Wikipedia as a van resource before. I stand by that. Wikipedia is super helpful in identifying things about your van that can be used to talk to other van life folks, such as what engine you have, what options you have, and things like that. So, link in the show notes, but you can search list of vans in Wikipedia, and then you too can learn what an Autozam Scrum is, because apparently that's a van or something. All right, let's do some van life news, because there's been some interesting news lately, and I want to lead off with something that came up. The state of Maine has decided that your vehicle registration may not be valid if you have a JDM vehicle. Obviously, we need to back up here a bit. A JDM vehicle stands for Japan Domestic Market. And because of the chicken tax and a bunch of politics, you cannot buy a Japanese vehicle and bring it to the U.S. and register it unless it's over 25 years old. That's been the case for decades. But there is a market for these 25-year-old vans because they have a lot of different kinds of vans in Japan that are pretty cool and people want them. One person is Nate of Element Van Life. He and his girlfriend Shayna bought a JDM High Ace, which is a type of Toyota. Very cool van. Right-hand drive, which I don't know that I would want. They actually tore it apart and rebuilt it out, and um, they're driving around the country in it right now, although it's just Nate at the moment. But you can watch their YouTube channel to check that out. Well, if they had registered that in Maine, it may have been just deregistered because Maine says that if your vehicles can't meet modern U.S. safety standards, then you can't register them. And this is a departure. It used to be that there was an exemption given for these older vehicles. Now, right now, apparently, they're only going after Mitsubishi Delicas, which they used to actually sell in the U.S., about 25 years ago, but now they don't. And these things called K-trucks, K-E-I, K-E-I. They're little tiny vans. They're they're very little tiny vans. They're not as... I have seen them in Chicago. Those are also being targeted and deregistered. What can you do if your vehicle is deregistered? Nothing. I mean, the state of Maine can say whatever they want about what vehicles are registered there. One suggestion I would have is to register your vehicle in Vermont... But while Vermont may issue you plates, it's probably not legal to live in Maine with a vehicle registered in Vermont unless you have a property in Vermont. It's complicated. So this is a story we're going to keep watching. Um, it's a little bit just, you know, it's, it's just another thing in the way of folks wanting to live alternative lifestyles. I'm not a fan and I don't even think the reasoning is sound, but there you go. On a better note, or slightly better note, used car prices are starting to fall or at least stabilize. Used car prices have been crazy. I mean, if you've watched the market at all, used cars are going for more than new cars in some cases, simply because you can get them. New cars, because of the chip shortage that I've talked about before, are very hard to get. And, you know, people need vehicles. It's not like you can wait in some cases. And, of course, this applies to vans as well. Vans also have the additional pressure of people really being interested in van life since the movie Nomadland came out and since the pandemic stopped people from traveling to other countries. And they're thinking, hmm, I'll travel in the U.S. in a van, that type of thing. But finally, the prices are starting to level out, and it's assumed that they will start to go down 
in the near future. And I've been predicting this all along, is that I think right now we are probably at the peak for prices. A lot of the folks who tried out van life are going to realize it's not for them. They're going to put their vehicles on the market, and the more vehicles on the market, the lower the price. That's how it works. So while prices are certainly not low, they should be getting lower. And finally, in a bit of belated news, did you know that some people who live in their vans don't consider themselves homeless? <gasps> Shocker. Yeah, well, apparently the Salt Lake Tribune has just figured this fact out. They ran an article this week <laughs> basically saying some people are choosing to live like this. And it's an article that talks about they won't accept any social services and we try to get them to live in a house and they just won't. It's, it's kind of a, it's an amazing article in that it's like, where have you been? <laughs> uh, the title of the article, the headline is Moab Dirtbaggers Blur the Line Between Homeless and Not. Some people are camping or living in vans by choice amid the city's affordable housing crisis. Uh, well, I mean, it's not a terrible article, but it's just kind of amazing that they don't get it yet. You would think with Nomadland and everything, people would start to understand that van life can be a choice, and it's a choice a lot of people are making. And, and just another note on this article, they only publish this because they have a grant from the local media association that is giving them money to report on homelessness. <laughs> they're not reporting on homelessness, they're reporting on houselessness, not homelessness. If you are making a choice to live the way you want to live, you are not homeless. Your home is just not traditional. And well, anyway, it, whenever you're outside the normal society, you're going to run into problems. And articles like this only surprise me a little bit because it seems like they're five years out of date. That's the news I've got for this time. I'll keep watching for anything interesting, but I will have links to all these stories in the show notes. And please let me know if you guys find something you think should be shared with everyone, because I'm happy to take suggestions for news or anything. Ooh, ran a little long this time. Thanks very much for listening. I absolutely appreciate it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And as a thank you for listening to the credits, if you're interested in buying Pagurus, my van, tell me the word kumquat, kumquat, and I will give you a $100 Amazon gift certificate as a reward, if you buy the van, that is. Until next time, remember the words of Antonio Banderas, although I imagine he is not the first to come to this conclusion, expectation is the mother of all frustration. <laughs>